Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Today, we're thrilled to have an exciting guest with us, Tomer Barrell, the president and COO of Melio Payments. And Melio isn't just any other fintech startup. It's one of the largest and fastest growing unicorns in the B2B payment space, revolutionizing the way small businesses handle their payments. In this enlightening episode, we dive deep into Tomer's illustrious career, drawing wisdom from his nearly nine-year tenure at PayPal. We'll explore why many perceive PayPal as a fintech founder factory and how this experience has shaped Tomer's approach to leading fintech ventures, first at Meta and now at Melio. We'll also unravel the insights from his PayPal tenure, specifically about building an easy use and sticky product and how those have significantly informed Melio's strategy for creating their own revolutionary product for small businesses. Tomer is a strong advocate for simplicity, and he really drives home the point that simplicity is everything. Today, he'll share how this philosophy is embedded in Emilio's very design, making it a user-friendly platform that meets the needs of small businesses. Lastly, we'll delve into Melio's growth strategy and their unique approach to fostering network effects through its products. Tomer will highlight the crucial role partnerships play in their business, including a recently announced Shopify partnership, and underscore the importance of quote-unquote meeting the customer where they are. All right, let's dive in. And with that, a warm welcome to Tomer Barrel from Melio. Tomer, where are you calling in from today? I'm actually in LA visiting. Uh, I was attending a, a friend of mine's 50th birthday this weekend. So talking to you from LA. Well, congrats to your friend. Thank um, you. I guess let's start off for, for the listeners to hear a little bit about your background and your journey into fintech. So... Um, my journey in fintech actually started with uh, with PayPal in two thousand and nine, uh, but uh, it's not. It wasn't the beginning of my career, so I I ended up spending longer than many in the Israeli military. I spent there thirteen years in intelligence, and then when I decided that I want to leave, I started. I did an MBA in Ansead, and from there was recruited by. McKinsey spent uh, almost two years in McKinsey as a consultant. I learned a lot, but ended up leaving to a startup called 3DV Science, uh, 3DV Systems. Uh, spent there uh, three years, and then got recruited uh, to PayPal, and that was my first uh, fintech job. It was focused on fraud detection. So the context, the reason that I guess I was brought to lead that group, Fraud Sciences, that was had been acquired by PayPal is that I, it had some resemblance to things that I uh, had done in uh, during my service. And uh, the rest was history. I ended up staying uh, nine years in PayPal and then moving to Meta or then Facebook to uh, be part of uh, Novi Libra uh, for four years and now Milio. So, uh, ended up staying in fintech. Amazing, impressive career. So a lot of our listeners are kind of going through different transitions in their career. Do you have any advice or anything that you took away from your time at McKinsey and your time at the startup? The time in McKinsey was uh, a great in grounding me in what the reality of business is. Uh, you get uh, exposure to many different businesses in a very short period of time. You do. I mean, I was already 30-something. Most people that start McKinsey are younger. But at 30-something, after leading teams in in the military, et cetera, I ended up doing the Excels 
on my own uh, into the into the night. So it's good because you you get a good feel of the data uh, and it's also a humbling experience. And there are basics, right? It was I see it as an extension of my MBA. So I think that for someone that does an MBA going to a consult to consulting for a couple of years is uh, is is a great idea, especially if you end up focusing on industries that you are interested in. For me, it was since I was part of the Israeli office, it was very broad. I did multiple things in multiple industries, it, despite the fact that personally it was uh, it was not my cup of tea in the sense that uh, being a consultant is not is probably not the greatest fit for me i think it was a good investment uh, of my time so that's mckinsey and it also by the way taught me about financial services i, I like almost anyone working in consulting you end up uh, serving a bank that's almost inevitable uh, so you you learn about how things really work and that's uh, also something that helped me later in fintech being a part of a startup is uh is also really important in kind of identifying the key differences between large established companies that don't i think the the, the key difference between a startup and a non-startup is whether there is a, an ex- existential threat or not so are you sure you're going to be you're going to exist tomorrow and even Milio, you know, we are already an established company and we've been a while, we raised a lot of money, all that is true, but still, and that uh, distinction is very, very important in how you behave and sense of urgency and what's expected from team members and what what's not, how to, uh, what to expect from your investors, uh, how to choose investors? We made some big mistakes back in the day, and with the with three D systems in that sense, and it impacted us. What happens during times of downturn? Uh, we had to sell the company in two thousand and eight. It wasn't the best time to sell a startup. So many experiences for for a period of three years. I think I learned really a lot about the industry, what to expect coming back to a startup, which is something that I'm I've done now. So. I am, despite the fact that both periods were hard, I'm uh, grateful for having them uh, during my career. That's awesome. I like that distinction of, it's almost like a feeling of when you're at a startup, you know, because you're fighting for your life versus other companies, you know. I guess following up, I did want to ask you what were, I mean, think about it as advice for, for future founders. What were some of the mistakes that were made at the startup in terms of choosing investors? I, I think you... Um, it's hard for first of all it's it's hard hard to know in advance so it's who, who to choose but sometimes a big name is good for the website and probably good also for the following rounds uh but it's also it doesn't guarantee that you'll get get the backing that you hope that you'll get the support that you get honest advice that don't reflect the investor's uh, agenda. Uh, we were, again, 2008 was hard, was a difficult year. Uh, I think more difficult than what we're facing in the past year, at least so far. Uh, I, I mean, in the industry as a whole and being uh, having an investor who doesn't have your best interests, your company's best interest, interests as a, as a uh, top priority is 
is difficult. So try and uh, understand based on the track record of the investor, how they behave in times of, of crisis. That's the most important. You know, at, at the end of the day, at, at times when it's not crisis, the investors are not very important. Uh, they they uh, provide uh, money. They open a few doors potentially. They get updates. They have some wise things to say, advice. Uh, but it, it's not. It, it's it's up to you to execute, and that that is what you're expected to do in a startup. At times of crisis, it changes, and uh, this this should be the leading criteria for choosing an investor. How do you expect them to behave during a crisis? Yeah, awesome. And then, so then you spent nearly nine years at PayPal, and it seems that so many talented people in fintech, founders, executives, have ended up spending a lot of time at PayPal. Why do you think that is? What do you think is the the common thread there? It's it's a little bit, uh, you know, a big part of it is just uh, sequence, right? So you ask yourself, why so many of the of the uh, founding fathers of the United States of America come from uh, certain countries. Well, they just arrived first, so you know it's uh, it's part of the kind of uh, the sequence of history. I think the same with PayPal. You can it's it's hard to say whether it is the first fintech or not, but it's probably the the first successful fintech in the history of uh, of tech with a pretty simple idea. If you think about it. In retrospect, that everybody uses, but the fact that you you can use uh, something other than the account number or the credit card number as something that represents you uh, as a pair, and then you don't need to remember or to find those numbers when you want to pay. You just use a uh, an email or a password. That that's that's PayPal essentially. Um, and that idea got repeated and used in many other startups later, or in many other fintechs later. So I think it's just it's mainly sequence. I think uh, the the other is that PayPal has been still is a very successful company uh, that built out of that simple idea a great business. Very strong years. Uh, many of the of PayPal's years have been very strong. A very strong network effect. Uh, that was very difficult to, I mean, it, it's, it, it doesn't matter what uh, management did, including myself, it was hard to spoil that, right? The, the network effect, it, it has its own rhythm uh, and impact. So, so just it, it grew and became kind of the, the place in which you learn how to, how to do fintech. And it, it makes sense. I think specifically in Israel, when um, PayPal bought fraud sciences and and entered the market in 2008 it was one of the very few first uh, uh participants in the local fintech industry so it also makes sense uh, that it's kind of uh, where many of the startups were born uh many of the people that ended up being founders in other places originally started in paypal so a lot of it is history and and the strength of paypal as a as a growth company leveraging network effects. So not many of the listeners to this podcast have the privilege of learning at such a great fintech school. And this is going to be a challenge, but do you think you could give us a two-minute breakdown of your biggest takeaways from your time at PayPal for those of us who, who don't have that same privilege? Oh, wow. Fintech MBA in, uh, in two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think uh, 
fintech, like it's all about, I mean, broadly speaking, the way the customer engages, making it easy, seamless, smooth, intuitive, all these things are true for fintech as well as the re- as, as well as the rest of tech, right? So that, that's kind of basic. Uh, strong growth is product-driven growth. Uh, Milio is also kind of a product-led company. The growth is product-led. That's the right way to do it. You can't compensate it for by other things, and that that's true. That was true for PayPal as well, and it's true for all other tech. I think what's unique about fintech is the fact that in the back end, the back end is much more complex. And more importantly, you rely on rails that are that basically were built in the 70s, a little bit in the 80s, and not much has changed since then. I mean, a few things, but essentially, if you look at the pipes, they were built then. And uh, they come with a lot of uh, burdens that don't exist in other parts of tech, like compliance, risk management, understanding network rules, um, all these things that are particular to fintech and are creating a burden. And if you don't do everything else, create a smooth experience, et cetera, while taking into consideration what happens in the back end and streamlining your back end and being excellent in how you do your back end, then you're not going to be successful. I think that's the main takeaway from nine years in PayPal. So be product driven. But take care of your back end, make sure that it's in sync uh, with what you're trying to do at the front end. It's much harder in te- in fintech than in the rest of tech. Yeah, that's awesome. So speaking of which, then you transitioned over to a regular big tech company who might not necessarily have that cultural understanding, right? That this is how fintech is. And you, you were running a fintech venture from within at Meta, right? How was that? Like, did you find that that there was a disparity in cultures, or maybe at PayPal, there's like this innate understanding of what is fintech, what are the challenges, and maybe at Meta, it was it was something that you had to drive internally, or, or I guess if you could shed some light on what was the disparity between, let's say, your time at PayPal and your time at Meta. I think we uh, we were lucky uh, to build a, a unit within. Meta that for uh, and then it was Facebook that at least for the first two three years was more or less independent from the rest of the company. We were trying to build something very different that would connect into the Facebook ecosystem, the Meta ecosystem. But at certain points, so we were and and a lot of the people were brought not all but a lot of the people were brought from the outside uh, and had experience. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the leader, David Marcus, uh, as well as others, had experience in PayPal and other places. So uh, we were able to create a culture that was uh, aligned with how you think about fintech within Meta pretty well. And we got a lot of, uh, to, to Meta's leadership, we got a lot of uh, leeway to do it our way. That was... Uh, so I felt that despite what you say, which is true, that's not the, the culture. And let's not forget that Meta is still in the process of maturing its own processes. And there are aspects of Meta like privacy that have become very important to the company. And that's uh, it's similar to some degree to the, some of the challenges that you face in financial services. 
So it has been maturing in this spirit as well. But I think in general, the the, the way we handle this tension that you point to is just uh, creating uh, a culture within a culture, uh, which is also not a, not easy in the long run. And uh, but uh, still, that's that's the way we handled it. Nice, well said. And then you moved over to Melio, which is a startup I'm a huge fan of. Could you give a brief overview of what Melio does uh, for our listeners out there? Yeah, Melio or Melio, you know, there there's a big debate on how to pronounce. Is uh, uh, focuses on business to business payments, and its core value proposition is to consumerize the experience of small business owners. So at the end of the day, a small business owner is someone like you and me, who is predominantly a consumer, doesn't have a finance department, doesn't necessarily have uh, an accountant, certainly not an accountant in-house, and is his or her focus in life is being successful in, you know, in creating something and selling liquor or wine and, you know, whatever it is. And that's their expertise. And they're not going to become experts in how you manage payments. And their expectation out of payments is that it's going to be similar to how they pay on Amazon for whatever they buy or when they send money on Venmo or on PayPal, that, that's what they expect. And suddenly they enter, become a small business owner and they realize it's much more complicated. You have accounts payable and accounts receivable. Just these words, just these terms are frightening. And you have uh, an invoice and a performa invoice and you have taxes. And how, how do you handle all this? And when do you exactly pay? And what, what are terms? And it, can you pay in any way? What Medio tries to do is take all this complexity and make it simple for the small business owner, simple and with a lot of flexibility. So, uh, okay, so this vendor that I'm paying to, they, he, she doesn't accept credit cards, but I can pay with a credit card and media will handle the rest for, uh, for me and translate it into a payment that is received in whatever way the vendor accepts. And this is all abstracted for me. So the idea is to create simplicity and uh, choice for the small business uh, owner. That that This is what Milio is about. I know Milio for much longer than since I joined it because I'm, uh, I'm actually a small investor in Milio from the early, very early days. Oh, wow, no way. Now. And uh, I was when Matan uh, left PayPal. I was uh, already on my way to to Meta, I think, or maybe in Meta already. I don't remember exactly. But he he reached out and we talked about his idea. And I I uh, knew Matan from our PayPal days, and I uh, really had a very strong belief in him as a leader and as a product person. Uh, one of the best, and uh, we're also we're lucky to have Elon as uh, another uh, leader uh, that I got to know later, and a very strong product and engineering leader. I I had an immediate trust in them that they would be able to create something phenomenal, uh, and I was in touch throughout this period, just uh, kind of meeting uh, Matan once in a while. So um, uh, it was uh, natural for me to join Milio full-time about a year ago. So that lends itself to, to our earlier discussion about PayPal, right? So there's the, the network of 
you know, founders and fintech executives, everyone kind of supporting each other as almost alumni. Um, that's so cool. And and I it was at the event that we were talking about before we started recording with, with Prashant, where he gave that picture of the of the restaurant owner sitting in the in the back office with books, you know, writing out, you know, everyone has that clear picture in their head of the restaurant owner sitting with a bunch of books trying to run the run the books by hand. Um, that's awesome. I mean, it's a huge problem space and Melio seems to be doing the most innovative stuff out there. So um, I guess one of my first questions around that is what are some of the strategies for selling, I would say, less early adopters of tech, right? Like these small business owners that can, in my head, aren't going to be your first, like aren't going to be the quick adopters of tech. So I guess what are some of the strategies you, Melly has taken or that you take um, now to to sell to these these different kinds of user personas, let's call it. You know, I I, I think um, if you think about these people as consumers predominantly, and in terms of their lives, there are more consumers than anything else. They are adopters of technology. Technology is all around us. I mean, this challenge, I mean, they they, they use their phone today to pay uh, on a regular basis. So, so I think it's mainly a mental shift to realize that these two worlds that we operate in, the personal and the business, are not that distant from each other. Uh, and if uh, it's easy, it's so easy to pay with a tap of your phone or pay with a tap of your plastic card even, or uh, so easy to buy online, which is everybody does. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not specific to early adopters today, right? This is the main way people buy stuff. Uh, if if that's the case, then why not adopt it into our business? Why is it that the restaurant owner who uh, on in his or her private life does uh, everything online, why do they, does she need to sit with books when it comes to managing the restaurant? It's so, so I do, I think it lands well from that perspective. I think it's uh, it, like everything else in life. It's more about the habit that you need to break. So I've been uh, sending checks for the last 15 years. You know, it, it, there needs to be a reason to disrupt and change a process. But it's, I don't feel it's about kind of uh, about a tech savviness necessarily of this demographic because they are, everybody is tech savvy. And if, if you make the product complicated for them so that they need to be tech savvy to adopt it, then it's it's your failure as the provider of the product, right? The product needs to be simple for anyone. Uh, and I think Milio, Milio's product is. So um, so that that's, I think at the end of the day, if we are successful in providing the simplicity and the choice that we aspire to, to provide, then we can get to anyone irrespective of where they are in the technology adoption curve. Right. I love that. That's like, again, going back to PayPal, it's like bringing like your takeaways from there about the simplicity of a product and how what it needs to be. And I'm sure that was in Matan's mind as he's building the first iteration of the product. Um, that's awesome. And then how how is Melio thinking about, or Melio thinking about uh, differentiation and competition, especially as this market feels like it's getting more and more competitive every year. Kind of how is Molly thinking through how do we stand out? How do we continue to to iterate and, and differentiate ourselves? I, I think actually one of the 
One of the things, I mean, I said that I invested in Milio because uh, I, I trusted Matan and Ilan, and and the other reason was that it's actually a problem with very very little competition. Almost, I would say, surprisingly, in a sense, still today. I mean, there are America is lucky to have a big part of its GDP driven by small businesses. It's not the same way everywhere. Uh, there are places in the world in which large companies are much more dominant. Uh, in America, small businesses, there are many millions of small businesses. And still today, about 50% of the payments that they make are paper checks. So, so competition is, is, is checks. It's, it's, you know, it's just, it's the, the, it's the, the restaurant owner who, as you described well, sits in the back of, in the back office with books and writes checks. It's that, that's the, that's competition. It's not anybody, not a company. It's, uh, it's, it still is a blue ocean. And I think that's the beauty of this space. I think it, the reason that there is, there isn't much competition is that it's actually hard what we are trying to do. So there are, there's certainly activity in the higher end. So if you are a startup, a company like Milio, actually, that looks for payment solutions, accounting solutions in software, et cetera, uh, for its finance department, you have several different options and there is competition. And it's natural because it's, uh, you know, it's a market, it's an enterprise market. The, the economics are clear. What we are doing is number one hard because it is taking something that is intrinsically complicated and making it simple. So it's hard from a product perspective. And the other is it, I mean, monetizing it hasn't been tried. And it's, you know, people say, well, will small businesses pay? And I can say that when you provide value, you get paid uh, one way or the other. So I think. Uh, at the moment, it's not about competition. It's more about building this network of uh, payors and payees and uh, for, uh, payors uh, that are small and payees all over that uh, are part of the Milio experience and uh, driving this growth at the expense of the old world of uh, books and checks. Yeah, and I guess speaking on that... that um accounting software. So, so you guys had a pretty big partnership announced with Zero, And kind of my question would be from like a product roadmap, kind of company roadmap perspective, how do you decide between, hey, this is something we're going to chase or is this how the decision making works? Where it's like, this is an area where you'd like to chase a partnership and this is an area that we'd like to develop internally product wise. Like how do you weigh and measure those two questions? So I think... Um... Uh, first of all, both are, I mean, I'll, I'll give a kind of a trivial answer to start with. Both are very important uh, to invest in. We have come, uh, so, so pro you mentioned the zero uh, partnership is an important one. We had an early, uh, one of the first and very important partnerships we've had was with Intuit. And I think it's, it led the team realize that context is king. So if you want to make things intuitive and simple, then being part of the right context is drives adoption and just makes sense for people. And uh, if you want to be in the right context, partnerships are the most important way. So you want to be where the right context exists. And that's the, the most important aspect of driving for partnerships. 
And we're lucky to be pursued by many uh, different potential partners. Some are announced like Cap One and, and others that we've launched with. And there is uh, there's uh, a long uh, pipeline of additional partnerships that will be announced in the coming month. And at the same time, so all this, why partnerships are important because of context. Uh, you you want to meet the customer where it makes most sense for the customer to engage in business-to-business -business payments. At the same time, meal.com is, is very important to us because it's where we continuously engage with our customers directly, are able to react to what they need uh, by building new features. Uh, new features are always first on meal.com almost always first on meal.com. And uh, it's a place, I mean, we, Medio has been investing in the past year in building a platform that will allow us to, to integrate easily with partners' infrastructure. And it's going to also support Medio.com as one of those instances. It allows us to get feedback from the market quickly and iterate much more effectively then with uh, then through a partner, and that's natural. It makes perfect sense. So, so for us, Milio.com is extremely important. It's also the roots of Milio, and we continue to to invest in it. So, uh, you can't, you have to do both. You can't be a a partnership only company, and you can't be a kind of. I mean, you can, but in the context of what we do, since context is king, you can't do only your own uh, thing. You have to invest in both. And that's what we're doing. I never thought about it that way. When I saw what, you know, Emilio was up to, I never thought that it was, the, it's the idea of the same base, right? That you're taking the same base, the same backend, the same rails and enab either enabling partners to use it or, you know, enabling your own front end, you know, Emilio.com um, to use it. That's, that's really cool. So I guess kind of more generally industry wise, is there, are there any problem spaces that you guys haven't been able to touch on at Milio that's just too far away that you think is a huge problem space and that that uh, I don't know if you, you wish that someone would work on. Has that ever come up? That's an interesting question. I think uh, I am uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned, we talked about PayPal earlier. One of the key driver, drivers of PayPal success was the ability to grow globally and to offer product that is that was built for the U.S. market, everywhere else in the world, it's uh, it's been uh, extremely successful. A lot a lot of PayPal's success is outside of the U.S. Certainly from an economic perspective. So, but also in terms of volume, uh, we're not there. We're far uh, in Milio from being able to offer something outside of the United States. Being able to build a platform that would fit. And the, the, the big the big issue is, of course, is is, reg, is the regulatory environment and the banking system, the way it works, et cetera. All this is different country by country, and also business to business payments are different. And the, it's uh, it's a very complicated world. So finding a way to scale globally is something that we're not working on, and I hope we'll be able to work on one day. But uh, if we partnered with someone that would, you know, even someone in Europe that would build B2B payments in for Germany and France that are two very different countries from a payments perspective and from a banking system perspective and be able to kind of integrate and use the same platform for both, 
that's a company that we would love to partner with uh, when we want to start working globally. Yeah, you know, that was actually a theme at the uh, Wharton Fintech Conference, which we're, we're publishing a, a recap episode not too long from now. Um, but uh, that was, a, that was a, a theme, was, was B2B cross-border payments or B2B payments like on a global global basis. Um, seems we, to do offer, we, we do offer international payments, but it's by payors in the U.S. that pay right. their vendors outside of the U.S. And that's not, you know, that's not really global, let's be honest. I mean, it's an, it's an important feature for the U.S. customer, but it's not offering uh, the breadth of videos Right. Uh, uh, experiences globally, and that is something that I wish we'll be able to get to one day. Yeah, are there any real, really cool advancements, let's say, outside of Medio in terms of payments that you've seen recently? Anything that you're like, wow, this is really cool what these people are doing? I think uh, the, the past year, at least, hasn't been uh, great in terms of kind of uh, stuff that was released to the market. Uh, I think most uh, companies are focused on kind of let's uh, get economics right, etc. So it, it, this is the period in which you don't see too much innovation. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think uh, we're still to see innovation, effective and uh, scalable innovation in the pipes. So we mentioned the fact that the pipes of the financial services ecosystem were built in the 70s and the 80s and haven't changed much thing since. I'm a believer that the, there will be a transformation of the underlying rails or pipes uh, that will make it more accessible, more uh, scalable, lower cost, easier to connect globally, maybe based on blockchain technology, maybe based on other technologies. I think this is st still ahead of us. I've seen some signs of this happening, and uh, I have my thoughts on who, who could be a uh, uh, leader in this space. I think this and this is something that I'm very passionate about, given also what I've done in in Meta and other uh, initiatives that I'm taking part in. Uh, so I'm I'm bullish about that happening uh, and eventually transforming the underlying pipes. And this is kind of a more fun personal question, but uh, talk about your involvement with the Israel Tech Challenge because I you know I almost participated when I was living in Israel. So I guess if you could describe what it is and uh, yeah, your involvement with it. So Israel Tech Challenge is uh, a great initiative that uh, started uh, by uh, Rafael Uzan uh, years ago. It's it's really the the, the original idea was to take uh, mainly immigrants or potential immigrants to Israel and train them uh, to become tech professionals mainly in the software space. I got to know the team when I was in PayPal Israel. So we're talking about, I don't know, 2011, something like that. Well, I, uh, I did not know it went back that far. Yeah, it is. It's pretty, it's been a while. And uh, we were, I think, the first uh, employer in which ITC graduates were placed. So essentially, in ITC, you, you you take people that have little background in tech, good, so they are tested ahead of being accepted to the program. Uh, they, they get exam, uh, examined in their ability to learn quickly, and then they go through a process of several months of very 
kind of intense training, similar to what's been done in the Israeli military when you recruit uh, young people. Uh, and then uh, they are, uh, after this period, they're placed uh, with uh, employers in Israel. And I think we were the first employer that in which ADC uh, wow. graduates uh, were placed. And then when a few years later, Rafael reached out uh, and Oren was the other founder and asked to uh, for me to join uh, the board. And I was a board member for several years. It's an, a non-for-profit company that is sponsored by the uh, Jewish agent, agency. So it's a kind of a mix of tech and uh, and not-for-profit, which was an interesting experience for me as well. But at a certain point, I just had too much on my plate, so decided that I'll stop my involvement there. But I'm still, in my heart, a great supporter of it. And it's uh, it's really, uh, it, it expanded over the years to focusing on other demographics in Israel beyond uh, new immigrants and um, uh, transforming capable, talented people into tech professionals in a few months. That's been the focus. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great success story of uh, the industry taking care of itself and of its future and expanding the everything that tech brings to uh, bigger parts of Israeli society. That's awesome. Okay, lightning round. So which podcasts do you listen to? So I'm a, uh, I, I'm a history geek. So first of all, most of the podcasts that I listen to are in Hebrew. I don't know whether all our listeners are going to be interested in this specific podcast, but I listened to uh, Sholem Amsterdamsky's podcast on economics, mainly Israeli economics. I listen on a regular basis. I listen to several history podcasts, again, in Hebrew. Uh, I, I spend so much time in English in my professional life that when I have a choice, I prefer to to listen in, in Hebrew. So these are the main podcasts that I listen to. So I was the opposite. I was I want I needed to be listen to my podcast in English because I was all day in Hebrew when I was in Israel. That's great. Yeah. Um, any suggestions for content for someone looking to learn about payments? I, I think it's the most important part of payments is the is the pipes, the rails. They are the most complicated. So I would invest in reading, and these are it's pretty boring to be honest, but in reading network rules understanding how Visa and MasterCard work and uh, in how ACH works and how SWIFT works. All of this is, on um, you know, it's not, you know, it's on the web. It's all available. It's all free. And uh, just do a search. I don't have a specific kind of source that is useful. There are no books that you would say, okay, this is a book that summarizes all. I think it's just too boring to write a book about. But it's, these are, at the end of the day, the, those are the, the things that differentiate between fintech and the rest of tech and get understanding them is kind of the the basic. Uh, these are the basics. There actually is a book on cross-border payments. It's very short. I think uh, probably the writer. No, there, there are many books. I'm not saying that there are no books, but if yeah. you ask me, the basics are uh, boring enough that it's not, but it's it's yeah. just, you have to, you have to understand these details to to be able to play. Yeah, yeah. And actually in line with that uh, top book recommendations, it doesn't have to be fintech or anything. Yeah. So uh, as I said, I'm a history geek. And uh, actually the one I just finished is The Story of the Jews by Simon Shama. It's a very long book. Actually, it's two books. And it's uh, 
for an Israeli who all his life saw the history of our people through the lens of the country, it's a, a reminder that most of, it's not a reminder, right? But it's kind of getting a lot of focus on uh, the history of Jews uh, outside of Israel, naturally, and a lot of focus on, you know, the history before uh, the 20th century, uh, a lot of detail, and he writes really, really well. So uh, a history book that I really, really enjoyed. And it took me a while to finish because it's very long, but still, I really enjoyed it. Looks looks like I have my uh, summer reading. That's it. Those two books. Yeah. All summer. <laughs> that's, good. that's great. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Tomer, so much for, for the time and um, have a great rest of your day in LA. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.